Chapter 5. Only One Way. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12. These words are striking in themselves, but they are much more striking if you consider when and by whom they were spoken. This grand confession of Christ was spoken by a poor, friendless Christian in the midst of a persecuting Jewish council, and these words were spoken by the lips of the apostle Peter. A few weeks before, this same man abandoned Jesus and fled. This is the very man who denied his Lord three times. There is another spirit in him now. He stands up boldly before priests and Sadducees and tells them the truth to their face. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4, 11-12. I don't need to tell you that this text is one of the principal foundations on which the eighteenth article of the Church of England is built. That article states, They also are to be had accursed that presume to say that every man shall be saved by the law, or sect he professes, so that he be diligent to frame his life according to that law and the light of nature. For Holy Scripture sets out unto us only the name of Jesus Christ, whereby men must be saved. There are few stronger assertions than this throughout the whole thirty-nine articles. It is the only curse pronounced by the Church of England from one end of her confession of faith to the other. The Council of Trent condemns continually in her decrees the Church of England does it once and once only. She does it on good grounds. I intend to prove this to you by an examination of the Apostle Peter's words. First I will show you the doctrine of the text, that is, what it teaches. Then I will give you some reasons why this teaching must be true, and last I will show you some consequences that naturally flow from this doctrine. The Teaching of Acts 4.12 let us make sure that we correctly understand what the Apostle Peter means. He says of Christ, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. What does this mean? Much depends on us seeing this clearly. He means that no one can be saved from sin, its guilt, power, and consequences, except by Jesus Christ. He means that no one can have peace with God the Father, obtain pardon in this world, and escape wrath to come in the next, except through the atonement and mediation of Jesus Christ. In Christ alone is God's rich provision of salvation for sinners treasured up. By Christ alone, God's abundant mercies come down from heaven to earth. Christ's blood alone can cleanse us. Christ's righteousness alone can clothe us. Christ's merit alone can give us a title to heaven. Jews and Gentiles, educated and uneducated, kings and poor men, all alike must either be saved by Jesus or be lost forever. And Peter adds emphatically, There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is no other person commissioned, sealed, and appointed by God the Father to be the Savior of sinners except Christ. 
The keys of life and death are committed to His hand, and all who want to be saved must go to Him. There was only one place of safety in the day when the flood came upon the earth, and that was Noah's ark. All other places and devices—mountains, towers, trees, rafts, boats—were useless. In the same way, there is only one hiding place for sinners who want to escape the storm of God's anger. They must dare to trust their souls to Christ. There was only one man to whom the Egyptians could go in the time of famine when they wanted food. They had to go to Joseph. It was a waste of time to go to anyone else. And there is only one to whom hungering souls must go if they don't want to perish forever. They must go to Christ. There was just one word that could save the lives of the Ephraimites in the day when the Gileadites fought with them and took the fords of Jordan. Judges 12, 5 6. They must say Shibboleth or die. There is just one name that will help us when we stand at the gate of heaven. We must name the name of Jesus as our only hope or be cast away for eternity. That is the teaching of the text. There is no salvation except by Jesus Christ. In him there is plenty of salvation. Salvation to the uttermost. Hebrews 7:25. Salvation for the very chief of sinners. 1 Timothy 1:15. Outside of him there is no salvation at all. It is in perfect harmony with our Lord's own word in the Gospel of John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John 14:6. Paul tells the Corinthians the same thing. Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid which is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3:11. And John tells us in his first letter that God hath given to us eternal life and this life is in his son. He that hath the son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. 1 John 5 11-12. All these texts come to one and the same point. There is no salvation except by Jesus Christ. Make sure that you understand this before you move on. Perhaps you think this is all old news. Perhaps you say, These are ancient things. 1 Chronicles 4 22. Everyone knows these truths. Of course, we believe there's no salvation except by Christ. But truly consider what I say. Make sure that you understand this doctrine, or else at some point you will stumble and be offended at what I have yet to say. Remember that you are to venture the whole salvation of your soul on Christ and on Christ only. You are to cut yourself off completely and entirely from all other hopes and trusts. You're not to rest partly on Christ, partly on doing all you can, partly on attending your church, or partly on receiving the sacrament. In the matter of your justification, Christ is to be all. This is the doctrine of the text. Remember that heaven is before you, and Christ is the only door into it. Hell is beneath you, and Christ alone is able to deliver you from it. The devil is behind you. And Christ is the only refuge from his wrath and accusations. The law is against you, and Christ alone is able to redeem you. Sin is weighing you down, and Christ alone is able to put it away. 
This is the doctrine of the text. Do you see it? I hope you do. But I'm afraid that many think they do who may find before laying down this book that they do not. Why the doctrine of this text must be true. I could cut short this part of the subject with one simple argument. God says so. One plain text, said an old theologian, is as good as a thousand reasons. But I won't do this. I want to address the objections that will come up against this doctrine by pointing out the strong foundation on which it stands. First, the doctrine of the text must be true because man is what man is. What is man? There is one broad, sweeping answer that takes in the whole human race. Man is a sinful being. All children of Adam born into the world, whatever their name or nation, are corrupt, wicked, and defiled in the sight of God. Their thoughts, words, ways, and actions are all defective and imperfect. There is no country on the face of the globe where sin does not reign. There is no happy valley, no secluded island where innocence can be found. There is no tribe on earth that is far from civilization, commerce, money, guns, luxury, and books, in which morality and purity flourish. Look over the stories of all the voyages and travels you can find, from Columbus down to Cook, and you will see the truth that I am asserting. The most solitary islands of the Pacific Ocean, islands cut off from all the rest of the world, islands where people were ignorant of Rome and Paris, London and Jerusalem, these islands have been found full of impurity, cruelty, and idolatry. The footprints of the devil have been found on every shore. The truth of our fall, Genesis 3, has been established everywhere. Whatever else the uncivilized have been found ignorant of, they have never been found ignorant of sin. Are there no men and women in the world who are free from this corruption of nature? Have there not been high and noble souls who have every now and then lived faultless lives? Have there not been some, if only a few, who have done all that God required and thus proved that sinless perfection is a possibility? No, there have been none. Search all the biographies and lives of the holiest Christians. Note how the brightest and best of Christ's people have always had the deepest sense of their own defectiveness and corruption. They groan, they mourn, they sigh, they weep over their own shortcomings. It is one of the things they hold in common. Patriarchs and apostles, fathers and reformers, Episcopalians and Presbyterians, Luther and Calvin, Knox and Bradford, Rutherford and Bishop Hall, Wesley and Whitefield, Martin and McCheney, were all agreed in feeling their own sinfulness. The more light they have, the more humble and ashamed they seem to be. The more holy they are, the more they seem to feel their own unworthiness and to glory not in themselves but in Christ. Now, what does all this prove? To me, it seems to prove that human nature is so tainted and corrupt that, left to themselves, no one can be saved. Our situation is a hopeless one without a Savior, and a mighty Savior at that. There must be a mediator, an atonement, and an advocate to make such poor, sinful beings acceptable to God, 
and I find this nowhere except in Jesus Christ. Heaven for man without a mighty Redeemer, peace with God for man without a mighty intercessor, eternal life for man without an eternal Savior, salvation without Christ, all appear to be utter impossibilities. I ask you to consider these things. I know one of the hardest things in the world is to realize the sinfulness of sin. To say we are all sinners is one thing. To have an idea of what sin must be in the sight of God is quite another. Sin is too much a part of ourselves to allow us to see it as it is. We don't feel our own moral deformity. We are like those animals in creation that are vile and loathsome to our senses, but are not so to themselves or to one another. Their loathsomeness is their nature, and they do not perceive it. Our corruption is part and parcel of ourselves, and at our best we have but a faint comprehension of its intensity. But if you could see your own lives with the eyes of the faithful angels, you would never doubt this point for a moment. Depend on it. No one can really understand what man is and not see that the doctrine of our text must be true. There can be no salvation except by Christ. Second, the doctrine of our text must be true because God is what God is. Now, what is God? That is a deep question indeed. We know something of His attributes, and He has not left Himself without witness in creation. He has mercifully revealed to us many things about Himself in His Word. We know that God is a Spirit, eternal, invisible, almighty, the Maker of all things, the Preserver of all things, holy, just, all-seeing, all-knowing, all-remembering, and infinite in mercy, in wisdom, and in purity. But our highest ideas are low and weak when we try to put down on paper what we believe God to be. We use so many words and expressions whose full meaning we cannot even understand. Our tongues say so many things of Him that our minds are utterly unable to imagine. We see such a small part of Him. It is possible to know only such a little of Him. How ordinary and insufficient are any words of ours to convey any idea of Him who made this mighty world out of nothing and with whom one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. 2 Peter 3.8 Our poor, feeble intellects are too weak and inadequate to conceive of Him who is perfect in all His works, perfect in the greatest as well as perfect in the smallest, perfect in appointing the days and hours in which Jupiter, with all its satellites, will travel around the sun, perfect in forming the smallest insect that creeps over a few feet of our little globe. Our busy helplessness can so little comprehend a being who is ever ordering all things in heaven and earth by universal providence, ordering the rise and fall of nations and dynasties like Nineveh and Carthage, ordering the exact length to which men like Alexander, Tamerlane, and Napoleon will extend their conquests, ordering the smallest step in the life of the humblest believer among his people, all at the same time, all unceasingly, all perfectly, and all for his own glory. A blind person is not a good judge of the paintings of Rubens or Titian. A deaf person is unaware of the beauty of Handel's music. The Greenlander 
can have only a faint notion of the climate of the tropics. A person from an undeveloped island can form only a remote conception of a locomotive engine, no matter how well you describe it. There is no place in their minds to take in these things. They have no mental framework in which to comprehend them. They have no mental fingers to grasp them. And in the same way, the best and brightest ideas that we can form of God, compared with the reality that we will one day see, are weak and faint indeed. But one thing I think is very clear is that the more any man considers what God really is, the more he must feel the immeasurable distance between himself and God. The more he meditates, the more he must see that there is a great gulf between him and God. His conscience, I think, will tell him, if he will let it speak, that God is perfect and that he is imperfect, that God is very high and he is very low, that God is glorious majesty and he is a poor worm, and that if ever he is to stand before him in judgment with comfort, he must have some mighty helper, or he will not be saved. All of this is the very doctrine of our text. All of this has led to the conclusion I am pressing on you. Since we have to give account to such a God as this, we must have a mighty Savior. To give us peace with such a glorious being as God, we must have an almighty friend and advocate on our side, an advocate who can answer every charge that can be laid against us and plead our cause with God on equal terms. We want this, and nothing less than this. Vague notions of mercy will never give true peace. And such a Savior, such a friend, such an advocate is nowhere to be found except in the person of Jesus Christ. I know well that people may have false notions of God, as well as of everything else, and may shut their eyes to the truth. But I say boldly and confidently, no man can have really high and honorable views of what God is like and escape the conclusion that the teaching of our text must be true. There can be no possible salvation except by Jesus Christ. Third, this doctrine must be true because the Bible is what the Bible is. All through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, there is only one description of the way in which we must be saved. It is always the same, only because of our Lord Jesus Christ through faith, not because of our own works and merits. We see it dimly revealed at first. It looms through the mist of a few promises, but there it is. Later, the account becomes a little less cloudy, as it is taught by the pictures and emblems of the law of Moses, the schoolmaster. Galatians 3.24. Then it's described even more clearly through the prophets' visions, in which they saw many particulars about the Redeemer yet to come. And at last we see it in full in the sunshine of the New Testament history. Christ incarnate, Christ crucified, Christ rising again, Christ preached to the world. But one golden chain runs through the whole volume. No salvation except by Jesus Christ. The bruising of the serpent's head foretold in the day of the fall. The clothing of our first parents with skins. The sacrifices of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Passover and all the particulars of the Jewish law. The high priest, the altar, the daily offering of the Lamb. The holy of holies entered only by blood. The scapegoat. The cities of refuge. 
all are witnesses to the truth presented in the text. All preach with one voice, salvation only by Jesus Christ. In fact, this truth appears to be the grand subject of the Bible, and all the different parts and portions of the book are meant to throw light on it. I see no ideas of pardon and peace with God except in connection with this truth. If I could read of one person saved without faith in a Savior, I might perhaps not speak so confidently. But I see that faith in Christ, whether a coming Christ or a crucified Christ, was the prominent feature in the religion of all who went to heaven. At one end of the Bible, I see Abel acknowledging Christ in his better sacrifice, and I see John's vision of the saints in glory rejoicing in Christ at the other end. I see a man like Cornelius who was devout, feared God, gave alms, and prayed. But the angel of God did not tell him that he had done all there was to do, and would of course be saved. Instead, he ordered Cornelius to send for Peter and hear of Christ. Acts 10. When I see all these facts, I feel bound to believe that the doctrine of the text is the doctrine of the whole Bible. There is no salvation, no way to heaven except by Jesus Christ. I don't know what use you make of your Bible, whether you read it or not, whether you read it all or only the parts that you like. But this I tell you plainly if you read and believe the whole Bible, you will find it hard to escape the doctrine of the 18th article of the Church of England already quoted. I don't see how you can consistently reject what I have been so urgently trying to prove. Christ is the way, the only way. Christ is the truth, the only truth. Christ is the life, the only life. John 14, 6. These are the reasons that confirm to me the truth laid down in our text. What man is, what God is, what the Bible is, all appear to me to lead us to the same great conclusion. There is no possible salvation without Christ. The Significance of the Text There are few parts of this subject that seem more important than this. The truth I have been trying to lay out before you so greatly affects the condition of a great proportion of mankind that it would be pretentious and insincere on my part to not say something about it. If Christ is the only way of salvation, how are we to feel about many people in the world? This is the point I am now going to address. I believe that many people will go with me as far as I have gone, but will not go further. They will allow my premises, but they will have nothing to say to my conclusions. They think it is unloving to say anything that appears to condemn others. For my part, I cannot understand such love. It seems to me the kind of love that would see a neighbor drinking slow poison but not interfere to stop him, that would allow emigrants to embark in a leaky, unreliable vessel and not interfere to keep them back, or that would see a blind man walking near a precipice and think it wrong to cry out and tell him of the danger, is not love at all. I believe the greatest love is to tell the greatest quantity of truth. It is not love to hide the legitimate consequences of the text we are now considering or to shut our eyes against them. And I solemnly call on every person who truly believes salvation is found only in Christ and in none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. 
I call on you who believe to listen to me while I present some of the tremendous ramifications involving this text. I am not going to speak of those heathen who have never heard the gospel. Their final state is a great depth that the mightiest minds have been unable to fathom. I am not ashamed to leave it alone. I will say just one thing. If any of the heathen who die heathen are saved, I believe they will owe their salvation, however little they may know it, on this side of the grave, to the work and atonement of Christ. Just as infants and the mentally disabled among us will find in the last day that they owed all to Christ even though they never knew Him, so I believe it will be with the heathen, whether many or few, if any of them are saved. For of this I am sure. There is no such thing as creature merit. My own personal opinion is that the highest archangel, though of course in a very different way and degree from us, will be found in some way to acknowledge his standing to Christ, and that things in heaven as well as things on earth will ultimately be found all indebted to the name of Jesus. But I leave the case of the heathen to others, and will speak of matters closer to home. One significance gleaned from this text is the utter uselessness of any religion without Christ. There are many in Christendom today who have a religion of this kind. They would not like to be called deists, but deists they are. The sum and substance of their creed is that there is a God, that there is what they are pleased to call providence, that God is merciful, and that there will be a state after death. As to the distinguishing tenets of Christianity, they don't seem to recognize them at all. I denounce such a system as a baseless fabric. Its foundation is man's imagination, its hopes are an utter delusion. The God of such people is an idol of their own invention, and not the glorious God of the Scriptures. Their God is a miserably imperfect being, even on their own showing without holiness, without justice, without any attribute but that of vague, indiscriminate mercy. Such a religion may possibly do as a toy to live with, but it's far too unreal to die with. It utterly fails to meet the needs of man's conscience. It offers no remedy. It provides no rest for the soles of our feet. It cannot comfort, for it cannot save. Beware of it if you love life. Beware of a religion without Christ. Another great lesson learned from the text is that any religion in which Christ does not have first place is foolishness. I don't need to remind you of how many hold to a system of this kind. Socinians tell us that Christ was a mere man, that his blood had no more efficacy than that of another, that his death on the cross was not a real atonement and propitiation for our sins and that doing is the way to heaven, not believing. I believe such a system is ruinous to men's souls. It strikes at the root of the whole plan of salvation, which God has revealed in the Bible, and practically it nullifies the greater part of the Scriptures. It overthrows the priesthood of the Lord Jesus and strips Him of His office. It converts the whole system of the law of Moses concerning sacrifices and ordinances into a meaningless ritual. It seems to say that the sacrifice of Cain was just as good as the sacrifice of Abel. It turns man adrift on a sea of uncertainty by plucking from under him the finished work of a divine mediator. 
Beware of it just as much as deism if you love life. Beware of even the smallest attempt to depreciate and undervalue Christ's person, offices, or work. The name whereby alone you and I can be saved is a name above every name, Philippians 2, 9, and the slightest contempt poured on it is an insult to the King of Kings. God the Father has laid the salvation of your soul on Christ and no other. If He were not very God of very God, He never could accomplish it. There could be no salvation at all. Another consequence of the text is seeing the great error committed by those who add anything to Christ as necessary to salvation. It's easy to profess belief in the Trinity and reverence for our Lord Jesus Christ, yet make some additions to Christ as the ground of hope, and thus overthrow the doctrine of the text as truly and completely as by denying it altogether. The Church of Rome does this systematically. She adds things of her own invention over and above the requirements of the gospel. She speaks as if Christ's finished work was not a sufficient foundation for a sinner's soul, and as if it were not enough to say, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Acts 16.31 She sends men to penances and absolution, to masses and extreme unction, to fasting and bodily mortification, to the Virgin and the saints, as if these things could add to the safety already found in Christ Jesus. In doing this, the Roman Catholic Church arrogantly sins against our text. Beware of any additions to the simple way of the gospel, from wherever it may come. But I fear the Church of Rome does not stand alone in this matter. There are thousands of professing Protestants who often err in the same way, although, of course, to a different degree. They get into a habit of adding, perhaps without even noticing, other names to the name of Christ, or attaching an importance to them that they do not deserve. There are those who elevate their beliefs regarding baptism, church government, separation of church and state, and other distinctives to the same level as Christ. However, unwittingly, they have a most uncomfortable tendency to add to the doctrine of our text. They all seem to be practically declaring that salvation is not found simply and solely in Christ. They are practically adding another name to the name of Jesus, whereby men must be saved, even the name of their own sect or denomination. They are practically replying to the question, What must I do to be saved? with not merely believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 16 30 31, but also come and join us. I call on every true Christian to watch out for such denominationalism, in whatever form he may be inclined to it. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood. I want everyone to be decided in his views of church matters and to be fully persuaded of their accuracy. All I ask is that you don't put these things in the place of Christ, or place them anywhere near Him, or speak of them as if you thought they were necessary for salvation. However dear to us our own peculiar views may be, beware of thrusting them in between the sinner and the Saviour. Don't add to the doctrine of the text. Remember, in the things of God's Word, addition, as well as subtraction, is a great sin. 
The last consequence of our text is the absurdity of supposing that we ought to be satisfied with a person's state of soul if only he is sincere. This is a very common heresy indeed, and one against which we all need to be on our guard. There are thousands who say, We won't interfere with the opinions of others. They may be mistaken, though it's possible that they're right and we're wrong. But if they are sincere, we hope they'll be saved just as we are. All this sounds liberal and charitable, and people like to imagine this is their own view. Now, I believe such ideas are entirely contradictory to the Bible, whatever else they may be. I cannot find in Scripture that anyone ever got to heaven merely by sincerity, or was accepted by God if he was only earnest in maintaining his own views. The priests of Baal were sincere when they cut themselves with knives and lances until the blood gushed out, but that did not prevent Elijah from commanding them to be treated as wicked idolaters. 1 Kings 18. Manasseh, king of Judah, was no doubt sincere when he burned his children in the fire to Moloch, but who doesn't know that he brought on himself great guilt by doing so? 2 Kings 21. The Apostle Paul, when a Pharisee, was sincere while he devastated the church, but when his eyes were opened, he mourned over this as an exceptional wickedness. Don't for a moment allow for the idea that sincerity is everything and that we have no right to think ill of a man's spiritual state because of the opinions he holds, if only he is earnest in holding them. On such principles, the Druid sacrifices, the car of Juggernaut, the Indian suttees, the systematic murders of the thugs, and the fires of Smithfield, might each and all be defended. It will not stand, it will not bear the test of Scripture. Once you allow such notions to be true, you may as well throw your Bible aside altogether. Sincerity is not Christ. Therefore, sincerity cannot put away sin. I am sure these consequences sound very unpleasant to the minds of some of you, but I say them deliberately. A religion without Christ, a religion that takes away from Christ, a religion that adds anything to Christ, a religion that puts sincerity in the place of Christ, all are dangerous, all should be avoided, and all are contrary to the doctrine of our text. I am sorry you may not like this. You think I am uncharitable, illiberal, narrow-minded, bigoted, and so forth. So be it. But you cannot tell me my doctrine is not that of the Word of God and of the Church of England, whose minister I am. That doctrine is that in Christ there is complete salvation, but outside of Christ there is no salvation at all. I feel I must testify against the spirit of the day you live in, to warn you against this infection. It's not atheism I fear so much in the present times as pantheism. It's not the worldview that says nothing is true as much as the system that says everything is true. It's not the system that says there's no Savior as much as the system that says there are many saviors and many ways to peace. It is the belief system that is so liberal that it dares not say that anything is false. It is the system that is so charitable that it will allow everything to be true. 
It is the system that seems ready to allow honor to others, as well as our Lord Jesus Christ, and to hope well of all men, however contradictory their religious opinions may be. It is the one that teaches that Confucius and Zoroaster, Socrates and Muhammad, the Indian Brahmins and the African devil-worshippers, Arius and Pelagius, Ignatius of Loyola and Socinus, are all to be treated respectfully, and none are to be condemned. It is the system that tells us to smile complacently on all the creeds and systems of religion, the Bible and the Koran, the Hindu Vedas and the Persians and Avesta, the old wives' fables of rabbinical writers and the rubbish of church traditions, the Thirty-Nine Articles and the Book of Mormon of Joseph Smith, and that all are to be equally listened to and none are to be denounced as lies. It is the system that is so scrupulous about the feelings of others that we are never to say they are wrong. It is the system that is so liberal that it calls a man a bigot if he dares to say, I know my views are right. This is the system. This is the kind of feeling that I fear today. This is the system I emphatically wish to testify against and denounce. This belief system is just a bowing down before a great idol deceptively called liberality. It is a sacrificing of truth upon the altar of a caricature of charity. Beware of it. Beware that the rushing stream of public opinion does not carry you away. Beware of it if you believe the Bible. Has the Lord God spoken to us in the Bible, or has He not? Has He plainly shown us the way of salvation in that Bible, and declared the dangerous state of those not in the way? Or has he not? Gird up the loins of your mind. 1 Peter 1.13. Look these questions fairly in the face and give them an honest answer. If you tell us that there is some other inspired book besides the Bible, then we will know what you mean. If you tell us that the whole Bible is not inspired, then we will know where to meet you. But if you grant for a moment that the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible is God's truth, then I do not know how you can escape the doctrine of the text. From the liberality that says everybody is right, from the charity that forbids you to say anybody is wrong, from the peace that is bought at the expense of truth, may the good Lord deliver you. I speak for myself. No matter what others find, I find no resting place between downright evangelical Christianity and downright infidelity. I see no halfway house between them. I can see consistency in an infidel, however much I may pity him. I can see consistency in the full maintenance of evangelical truth. But as to a middle course between the two, I cannot see it. Let it be called illiberal and unloving. I can hear God's voice nowhere except in the Bible and I can see no salvation for sinners in the Bible except through Jesus Christ. In Him I see abundance. Outside of Him I see none. As for those who hold religions in which Christ is not all, I have a most uncomfortable feeling about their safety. I don't for a moment say that none of them are saved, but I say that those who are saved are saved by their disagreement with their own principles and in spite of their own system. The man who wrote the famous line, He can't be wrong whose life is in the right, 
was undoubtedly a great poet, but he was a wretched theologian. Footnote, this line is from the poem Faith, written by Alexander Pope, an English poet and satirist of the early 18th century. Let me conclude with a few words of application. First, if there is no salvation except in Christ, make sure that you have an interest in that salvation yourself. Don't be content with hearing, approving, and assenting to the truth, but going no further. Seek to have a personal share in this salvation. Take hold of it by faith for your own soul. Don't rest until you know and feel that you have actual possession of the peace with God that Jesus offers, and that Christ is yours and you are Christ's. If there were two or three or more ways of getting to heaven, there would be no need to urge the subject on you. But if there is only one way, it's no wonder that I say, make sure that you are in it. Second, if there is no salvation except in Christ, try to do good to the souls of all who don't know Him as Savior. There are millions in this miserable condition, millions in foreign lands, millions in your own country, millions who are not trusting in Christ. If you are a true Christian, you ought to feel for them, you ought to pray for them, you ought to work for them while there is still time. Do you really believe that Christ is the only way to heaven? Then live as if you believed it. Look around the circle of your own relatives and friends. Individually, think how many of them are not yet in Christ. Try to do good to them in some way. Act as someone should act who believes his friends are in danger. Don't be content with them being kind and amiable, gentle and good tempered, moral and courteous. Be miserable about them until they come to Christ and trust in Him, because you ought to be miserable. Don't leave anyone alone who is outside of Christ if you have the opportunity to reach Him. I know all this may sound like enthusiasm and fanaticism. I wish there were more of it in the world. Anything is better than a quiet indifference to the souls of others, as if everybody was on the way to heaven. Nothing demonstrates our little faith as much as our little feeling and care about the spiritual condition of those around us. Third, if there is no salvation except in Christ, let us love all who sincerely love the Lord Jesus and exalt Him as their Savior, whoever they may be. Don't draw back and look scornfully on others because they don't see eye to eye with us in everything. No matter a person's denomination or persuasion, if he loves Christ and gives him his rightful place, love him. We are all quickly traveling toward a place where names and rituals and church government will be nothing, and Christ will be all. Let's get ready for that place ahead of time by loving all who are in the way that leads to it. This is the true love to believe all things and hope all things as long as we see Bible doctrines maintained and Christ exalted. Christ must be the single standard by which all opinions are measured. Honor all who honor Him, but never forget that the same Apostle Paul who wrote about love also says, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. 
If our charity and liberality are wider than that of the Bible, they are worth nothing at all. Indiscriminate love is not love at all, and indiscriminate approval of all religious opinions is just a new name for infidelity. Welcome all who love the Lord Jesus, but be careful how far you go beyond this. Last, if there is no salvation except by Christ, don't be surprised if ministers of the gospel preach a great deal about him. We cannot tell you too much about the name which is above every name. Philippians 2 9. You cannot hear of him too often. In our sermons, you may hear too much about controversy. You may hear too much of men and books, of works and duties, of rituals and ceremonies, of sacraments and ordinances. But there's one subject that you can never hear too much of. You can never hear too much of Christ. When we are tired of preaching him, we are false ministers. When you are tired of hearing of him, your souls are unhealthy. When we have preached him all our lives, the half of his excellence will remain untold. When you see him face to face in the day of his appearing, you will find there was more in him than your heart ever imagined. Let me leave you with the words of Robert Trail. I know no true religion but Christianity, no true Christianity but the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of his divine person, of his divine office, of his divine righteousness, and of his divine spirit, which all that are his receive. I know no true ministers of Christ but those who make it their business in their calling to commend Jesus Christ, in his saving fullness of grace and glory, to the faith and love of men. No true Christian, but one united to Christ by faith and love, unto the glorifying of the name of Jesus Christ in the beauty of gospel holiness. Ministers and Christians of this spirit have been for many years my brethren and companions, and I hope will always be, wherever the hand of God will lead me.